Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Successful investors know that collaboration and sharing ideas and helping each other improve is valuable. And so it can be... At its best, it encourages people to cooperate, which is nice to see. In this first episode of the Investor Bootcamp series on the Australian Investors Podcast, I'm talking with Strawman founder Andrew Page and a Rich Life founder Claude Walker. We're talking about our top investing books. We've each brought one book to the table and suggested why we like it and also kind of mapped out, you know, what are the things that you should get from it, whether you're just starting out on your investing journey or whether you're firmly into it. Finally, I asked uh, our Twitter community for their favorite book. So I've included a heap of names and a heap of books there at the end. Don't forget, if you want to, you can download the training manual, which will encompass all of the show notes and all of the links that we referred to throughout this episode and throughout all of the episodes in the Investor Bootcamp series. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Hello and welcome to the first episode in our Investor Bootcamp series. My name's Owen Rask and today I'm joined by two uh, friends and experts in, in investing. I've got Andrew Page from Strawman. How are you going, mate? Good, mate. How's things? Very well, very well. If I'm a bit nasally, it's because I actually have COVID and I'm in isolation. Not to timestamp this episode too much, but that's all right. And Claude, um, Claude Walker from Rich Life. How are you going, mate? Oh, well, thanks. Good to see you. Likewise, likewise. So uh, the three of us, we're just going to uh, talk about our favorite investing books for for beginners and for intermediates that are starting their journey towards investing. Uh, it's probably the books that we have today. Uh, my book is probably more towards that beginner level, but um, is actually really important for people that are trying to, uh, I guess, develop an investment strategy, as you said, Claude, off air a minute ago. And then we're going to dive into uh, some of the other books, which are a bit more advanced, um, we've also got some submissions from Twitter as well. So uh, there's a heap of books and there'll be a lot of show notes to go with this, this episode. So be sure to click on them as well as links to Strawman and to A Rich Life. Um, so please follow up with Andrew, Claude and myself following this episode if you want to get in touch. But I thought, guys, maybe I'll start first uh, with my book, which is the little book that beats the market. And there's, it was actually republished after 2005, which this this copy here um, I know not everyone watches this, um, they listen to it, but I'm holding up the book here. And this is from Joel Greenblatt. And this is the book that, the little book that still beats the market. <laughs> and in the book, um, it's basically an introduction to quantitative investing. And so throughout the book, uh, Greenblatt goes to lengths to describe how companies can be effectively ranked by two criteria. The first is high returns on invested capital. Um, so that's like a measure of quality when we talk about investing quality and quality businesses, companies that can return um, more money to their shareholders for less capital uh, deployed uh, tend to be higher quality. Uh, and the second thing is price. And this is where we're looking at like enterprise value versus the earnings of a business. And um, we want to rank for obviously cheaper stocks and those with higher quality, so better earnings. Um, and I did do this magic formula invest uh, investing strategy, if you like, on the ASX. Um, and I've come up with a list of companies, which I'll include in the show notes. Um, I know Matt Joss, a friend of ours, 
um, did this on the ASX many years ago. And he came up with a bunch of different companies and micro caps. And it was a really interesting list because it was all the things that you probably don't want to invest in at the time. You know, mm-hmm. things that are like cheap and you're like, oh, it's a bit ugly. It's a bit hairy. But then when you see the high returns on investor capital, that kind of gives you comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if either of you guys have read this book. I have. Um, it, it is a really good book. Um, the one thing I, I took away, well, I took a bunch of stuff away from it, but I think one thing that's important to, for me at least, to understand with this, uh, as you say, quantitative approach, which just means playing it by the numbers, is that it's not something that you can do selectively. So if you run this on the ASX mm. and you get a list of 200 stocks, don't pick three stocks, right? Because yeah. what you, you're going to, you're statistically, there's going to be a whole bunch of, of false positives within that. Where the And he makes, I believe, uh, it's been a while since I read it, but I think he makes this point himself, which is this is something if you're employing this strategy and there's 200 stocks that meet the criteria, buy the 200 stocks, right? It's yeah. something where you want to sort of get, maybe you'll get like a 60-40 sort of uh, 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 ratio of winners to losers, but that's enough to sort of drive an overall return. So that's that they're all the the thing to bear in mind with these quantitative approaches that there's, there's there's a whole bunch of nuance and and exceptions to the rule within this. So you can have companies that have when you scan for a really high return on invested capital, you, these things show up, but it, there might have been an anomalous period there or yeah. something that doesn't quite, you know, or, or maybe the PE or the enterprise value to earnings is really, really, really low, but for very, very, very good reason. So you, you, yeah, I, I that, that would be my emphasis on that is, is if you're going to follow this approach, you have to have a very broad basket of, of shares. Otherwise, I think it's it's actually a great way of just generating a short list that then yeah. you can overlay that with some qualitative considerations. Yeah. yeah. I think, sorry, go for a chord. Uh, absolutely. I agree that, you know, um, perhaps actually using the formula would be a lot of hard work for perhaps you'd just be better off getting an index fund. You know, I'm not sure that the outperformance you generate after all the brokerage and all that stuff would really make sense necessarily, mm-hmm. e- even if it did, you know, work in the future, which it may well. But um, sort of just zooming out a bit, I read that book at the very, like towards the beginning of my investing journey. And what I really like about it as a book for people to read, especially if they they might have been investing in ASX stocks for a year and learned some of the psychology with ups and downs and um, that kind of thing, but they might not really have gone very far at all into actual fundamental analysis. And, you know, the book just works through, you know, if memory serves me, it works through some you know, basic examples of how business might work, how return on invested capital, you know, is going to shape the fate of that business over time, mm. how big it can get, how much it needs to dilute to grow, all of those things. Like it gives you an understanding of, it draws the line in your mind between a mental model you might develop as a very, very beginning to think about companies, you know, read what it does and you have an idea of what it does. But then this book, um, also draws the link between what the company does that might be, you know, open up hairdressing stock shops or whatever it is and how much it costs to set up each shop mm. and, you know, the the getting started costs before it becomes a profitable unit and all of that kind of thing. And um, draws a line basically between financial metrics and then the reality on the ground. So it starts to bring the life to life, the idea that you might be able to actually look at a whole bunch of numbers and calculate ROIC and look at growth rates over time and all of this kind of thing. And I'm not talking about just revenue growth rates or, you know, or AR growing at 30% per year. No, I'm talking about like looking at all, you can start to see 
you know, it can bring to life how operating leverage works and all that kind of thing. So I think that it's a great um, thing to read in conjunction with actually starting to like muddle through and read yeah. profit and loss and cash flow statements and all that yourself. And you can start seeing, oh, this is the investing cash flow that eats away into free cash flow because it needs that to grow and open the new store. And, you know, this is the operating cash flow. So, yeah, I just like it for that reason as well. And then just the idea, if nothing else, it teaches that like, well, you need to have a strategy if you're going to do this. Like, what's your strategy to actually make money on the market? Because it's possible that there are people listening to this that, only got started in say like sometime in 2020 and like maybe for them it's just been a lot of chasing around stuff that they've heard on um, mm. social media and they have started to see now the up and the down of that kind of thing so uh, someone who felt like a genius running that kind of strategy in 2021 in, a, in, in February 2021 you know they've probably definitely felt the other side of that now mm. uh, m- most of those people would have so I think this is a good book to read to like just give a far more sophisticated and time-tested framework for actually making money on the market as opposed to, you know, the framework that works in short periods, which is like jump on the hot thing that your friends have or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and that, yeah, I, I agree with everything. I actually agree with what both of you said there that Claude, you made a good point about brokerage. Um, in the book, he talks about, you know, buying a number of positions every month and buying the top 20 or 30 in your list. And if you think about that, you know, you're going to accumulate brokerage, you're going to end up with a pretty big portfolio. And uh, to your point, Andrew, you kind of have to stick to the strategy if that's your strategy, because you know, I've had Tobias Carlyle on the show, who's actually done an updated study of this effectively. And um, he's found that basically you only need the value criteria, the value factor to earn a similar return, if not better. But if you exclude things, you actually, you, you, you run the risk of underperforming pretty considerably. So uh, this is not necessarily a book to like, I, I, I find some books like this one, which is like, here's the application. Here's a, the, some theory. Here's the application. You can, some people can go astray with that because they can think, oh, well, this is the gospel. This is going to, you know, I'm a stock market genius, whatever. But the reality is sometimes you need these books in your journey earlier on so you can get a tangible outcome from reading. Mm. Um, whereas say some of the books that are a bit more philosophical, if you're a new investor, it's not the right time for you to read that book, which mm. I think is a good point too, which Claude actually lets, this is a perfect segue into your book, um, which I've also got beside me here. Um, I'll let yeah. you do the intro to it, but philosophically, I think this is probably like, this is the juggernaut for me. This is n- number one. Well, I don't have the cover of mine anymore, um, but it's, yeah, that's what it looks like. This is what mine looks like. It's Investing the Last Liberal Art, uh, second edition by Hagstrom. And uh, funnily enough, this book was originally called, oh, I forgot what it, what I said. Hold on, it's right here at the first page. It was originally called Latticework, The New Investing. And then that didn't sell so well. And then a publisher changed it to investing the last liberal art. And then probably people like me were like, oh yes, I'm a, I am into liberal art. Oh, this sounds fantastic. I should have called called it how to make a fortune. (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, that would get a different kind of person, but um, have you read this one, Andrew? I actually haven't. I confess. Yeah, see, need another third edition, how to make a fortune, but it doesn't, it probably doesn't really tell you that. Um, but yeah, uh, so basically what it is, is, and Owen, feel free to jump in here and in, in describing what the idea of it is, but essentially 
it run it has it has this idea that you know you need a lattice work of frameworks right so a lattice work is what you get when you put a bunch of frameworks together and each one of those frameworks is you know i guess a different way of thinking about investing now uh you know the there's biology which sort of harks on an the idea of, and he, you know, puts these in categories, biology, physics, mathematics. Um, with biology, he uses the, um, I guess, his, the idea of evolution, like investing evolution styles mm. what evolves over time, just like biology does. And what, you know, determines what evolves is what can, you know, be most profitable or slash, you know, have the most offspring that survive, et cetera. And you can see, and I'm not going to delve right into this uh, biology example because actually um, we have uh, a, a review of this book on my website uh, by Trevor Myers, um, oh, cool. which actually talks about that particular um, biology chapter and also the psych- psychology chapter. Um, but I just offer that by way of example because, you know, we all sort of have a basic understanding of evolution, I'd hope. My favourite uh, chapter is actually on sociology. And I thought I'd just kick it off by um, giving you, just reading a passage, which gives you a feel for the good parts of this book. Now, there are so many different frameworks, like within sociology and biology and mathematics and physics, they have different ideas and different frameworks, right? But what it does is pull together all of this sort of academic research that could be used as models to think about investing and applies them to investing to see what that can teach us and to see if that can give you, you know, another way of thinking about it. And one of the um, ones that I really like in the sociology section is sort of this idea of what they called uh, self-organized criticality. Um, So one of the uh, features of this book is that there's often before he'll tell a story or share a model or framework, um, he loves to have an intro to, you know, who come up, came up with this and all that kind of thing. Now these can get a bit long. You might find yourself like sometimes skipping that, which is how I sort of read it sometimes, but I'm going to just jump right in uh, to this description here of this model, which is according to back large complex systems composed of millions of interacting parts can break down, not only because of a single catastrophic event, but also because of a chain reaction of smaller events. To illustrate the concept of self-criticality, Back often used the metaphor of a sand pile. Imagine an apparatus that drops one single grain of sand onto a large flat table. Initially, the sand spreads out across the table and then begins to form a slight pile. As one grain rests on top of another grain, the pile of sand rises until it forms a gentle slope on each side. Eventually, the pile of sand cannot grow any higher. At this point, sand trickles down the slope as fast as the grains are added to the top. In Bach's analogy, the sand pile is self-organized in the sense that it is formed without anyone placing the individual grains. Each grain of sand is interlocked in countless combinations. When the pile has reached its highest level, we can say the sand is in a state of criticality. It is just on the verge of becoming unstable. When one more grain of sand is added to the pile at that point, the single grain of sand can start an avalanche with sand rolling down the side slope of the pile. Each rolling grain of sand will stop if it happens to fall into a stable position. Otherwise, it continues to fall and possibly hits other grains of sand that may also be unstable, knocking even more grains further down the side. The avalanche ceases when all unstable grains have fallen as far as they're going to fall in the shape of a pile. If the shape of a pile of sand has flattened from the avalanche, we can say 
the pile is in the subcritical phase and will remain there until more sand is added once again, raising the sides of the slopes. So um, I hope that sort of painted, you know, a picture there of the, of how you can have this sort of self-organizing capacity of something. And then this can alternate between stable and unstable. Now you can imagine, because this is a book about investing, then this model can get applied to markets and particularly because we're in the sociology section, the sociology of markets. And we can uh, use this kind of model to explain, for example, how we have a situation where, you know, everyone's loving um, the growth stocks or the, you know, the loss making uh, software as a service stocks in the USA and they've got upgrades because of COVID and that's maybe kicked it off, but you've got more and more people piling on because they're winning and winners like, you know, attracting more winners and then something happens and, and it sort of like falls down and there's this sort of process that's happening within sociology, how people are feeling. Like, you know, two years ago, I was writing some article about how I was buying rocket cloud growth stocks just because I thought the market was being silly and this thing going on. And, you know, now I'm kind of like, yeah, probably not adding to any of those ones anymore. Like um, I hope I took some profits and took enough profits when I had the opportunity, but you know, now we've sort of passed that phase. And I, part of the reason I guess I'm willing to change my attitude is because this has shaped my investing because I'm willing to look, I want to see the sociological piles of sand are growing and collapsing and and doing their evolution with time and have that as a framework that matters for me. And even if it, even if I'm just going to hold, you know, my long-term high quality growth company all through the thing, it can still give me a better feel for a, what's coming, what to expect, mentally prepare myself for what's coming down. Maybe that means I'm reducing the position size. And then when people are, you know, it's no longer building up like that then um, that might be an, a time when I added to it. And this can be a way of, you know, you're obviously trying to understand the sociology of what's happening in markets and then make sure that you're not the one that's following the herd. You're actually the one that's um, intelligently thinking about what the herd is doing and, and how that can help you. And that's just one sort of exa- example of like heaps of gems in the book that I, have- so- yeah. Make me daydream uh, about investing. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said, I haven't read the book, but from, from your description there, I'm definitely going to. So one thing I, I would really like to emphasize is that all of the best investors I know are, uh, are probably what you'd call polymaths, um, not necessarily experts in every domain, but I think mm. people think to do well in investing, you it's all about finance and accounting and economics. And those yeah. concepts are really important. But the best investors just have a range of mental models that, that you can apply. At the end of the day, these, these stocks, these ticker symbols, behind that are real-world businesses with flesh and blood human beings interacting in a very complex world. And I think the person who is curious and ventures well beyond the, the very tightly defined sort of traditional rails of, of investing is far better suited. And so um, I think that's mm. really important. Charlie Munger talks a lot about this, uh, and, and I think he's obviously a very, very successful investor. But you look at you look at what he spends his time. He'll be reading physics books. He'll be reading like all kinds of things because they give you. It's not as though the direct application of these fields are obvious to investing, but they do give you important ways to think 
um, uh, or to put investing ideas into context. So I, I would actually say if someone is who, who wants to be a good investor, you necessarily to be a generally a curious person and mm. venture far far and wide over all kinds of things because sooner or later it, it comes back to markets, right? Markets yeah. don't exist in a vacuum. It's in, in the real world and there's all kinds of forces at play. So, yeah, it sounds like a really great book. What I would say is with this book is this is not – the book that you want to read if you haven't invested before. So this is a book that in this, in my opinion, um, you would want to understand and you would want to have experienced what it's like to see people get really emotional about investing, to come up with theories about how investing is done. Um, to your point, Andrew, only one of the chapters is titled mathematics. Hmm. Um, the rest of it is, you know, all of these other, I guess, mental models and frameworks. Um, Claude, there's, I know we've, we've, we've sp- spoken about this before, but there was one um, paragraph in here that I might just quickly read off as well. That yeah, sounds great. I love it. I love hearing like a little, like there's so many good paragraphs in it. You just have to skip sometimes when it's like, and so-and-so worked with so-and-so and yeah. then, then, it's like, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like a historian of the ideas of investing in some ways. Yeah, this is this is one, and I'll just put this out there. Um, and it's talking about Kahneman, um, and, and um, Hagstrom says intuition appears to work well in linear systems where cause and effect is easy to identify, but in non-linear systems, including stock markets and economies, system one thinking, the intuitive side of our brain, is much less effectual. Uh, and that is just him saying that these are complex systems. You know, we often t- tend to think interest rates fall. therefore stock market does this, or if this, then that, but it's not that simple. And I think the quicker you can get your your head around that to your point, Andrew, it's like thinking probabilistically, it's thinking about, Mm -hmm. there are many different factors that are going to influence how this company does or how this investment does. It's not if the PE ratio is below 10 or above 20, you know, there, there there's a bit more to it. And I think that humility that comes with investing is really interesting. I love that. I, and there's so many ideas in, in mathematics that, that translate uh, across to investing. I, I really like game theory for this point of um, in, in, in its application to I- investing. Whenever someone comes to you with a simple formulate kind of approach, <laughs> I'm very aware of the fact we just talked about the little book yeah. that beats, beats the market. Um, but you've got to understand that that if it's like the old joke, two economists walking down the street. One sees a, a $100 note and goes to pick it up. And the other one says, don't bother. If it was really there, someone would have picked it up by now. In other words, things things tend to self-correct. So if let's say you, are, you and I figure out a really great uh, way to approach the market, the very application of that and the more widely adopted that becomes, it actually arbitrages away the opportunity. Yep. I mean, think of it just it just seems obvious, right? If if any of us could just say, hey, just do these three things and you will beat the market. And let's say that's legitimate. Well, what's the natural consequence of that? The natural consequence of that is, well, I'm going to start doing it. And then that other guy's going to start doing it. And then this girl's going to start doing it. And it's just everyone starts doing it. And, and it just it it goes away just by the application of, of that kind of approach. So, um, yeah, I, I, I love I love anything that draws on other fields of study and, and brings it back to investing because pretty much all fields of study come back to it in some way, shape, or form. Totally. Yeah. And just on that point, Andrew, you reminded me of another section in the um, physics chapter. And what it does is, you know, it, it uses physics to talk about I guess, how we understand markets. And, you know, that price point is like the equilibrium between supply and demand for shares. Um, And then yet, of course, he does actually 
delve into how, um, you know, this might be wrong and how you can question this equi equilibrium model. And this is where he, he introduces this idea of uh, complex adaptive systems. And I think mm -hmm. that's what you were just talking about mm -hmm. in a sense. It says those systems with many interacting parts that are continually changing their behavior in response to changes in the environment. A simple system, by contrast, has very few interacting parts. Examples of complex adaptive systems include central nervous system, ecologies, ant colonies, political systems, social structures, and economies. So this list of complex adaptive systems, we must add one more stock markets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 so true. And, and, that, and that's why things that worked really well in the 50s stopped working and then different approaches came into the fore and then that stopped working and so on and, and so forth. It's just, it's just, it's the nature of, of these, as you say, complex adaptive systems. Yeah. Um, this is, this is, it's a great book. I didn't know that Trevor had written something up for the site, Claude. So I'll put that in the show oh, notes yeah, as that'd well. Be awesome. Yeah. He does some great summaries of books and podcasts. Yeah, um, well known and, for his good summaries. Yes. Yes. He is indeed. Um, Andrew, we might jump to you for the, the third book. Um, and after that, I'll just go to the, the community. We've had a few people write in on Twitter with some of their recs too. But um, yeah, I, this is a book I believe neither Claude nor I have read. So um, we're going to lean on you pretty heavily for this one. Mm -hmm. uh, which book is it? It's called The Most Important Thing. And it's by an American investor uh, called Howard Marks. He's the co-founder and, and chairman of uh, a little company called, well, not so little company called Oak Tree <laughs> Capital Management, the largest investor of distressed securities worldwide. Um, I would very much encourage every listener to Google that find his website, go to Oak Tree Capital and subscribe to his newsletter. It's free. They're mm -hmm. not trying to sell you anything. Um, you and I aren't the clients that they're after. <laughs> um, uh, but he, he writes all these memos. So eventually he put it all, it's actually a while ago now, he's, he's, um, he's put it all into a book. And it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a tongue in cheek title because he says the most important thing is, and then he's got like 12 or 13 chapters, each, each of which is the most important thing, which is really great because it's kind of like, well, they're all important. You can't really yeah. distill it. The most important thing is, is like, well, actually this is important. That's important. And et cetera, et cetera. But he really nails it. And he's, he's kind of like, um, he's, he shares an attribute with Buffett. I guess the thinking is very similar, but he's got a he's got a great skill for for very clear, articulate communication. So you'll find as you sort of read a lot of his stuff, you're nodding and going, ah, lots of light bulbs going mm. going off. Um, so I love it. It's it's going to be hard to to go through each each of the chapters, but I'll I'll pick out some of the things that that really appeal to me. Um, Marx is big on this idea of second level thinking, and this is really this is trying to sort of go beyond that first level, which is simplistic, it's superficial, and everyone can do it. Whereas second level thinking is deeper, it's more complex, and it's more convoluted. Now, that's that's a theoretical description, doesn't probably help anyone. I'll give you a couple of good examples. When COVID hit, people be, being people, despite the tragedy of, of that scenario, thought, well, how can I profit out of this? And a lot of people thought, well, actually, there's some funeral homes listed on the ASX. You know, this is a bit grim, this is a bit dark, but hey, global pandemic, this is going to be great for a, for a funeral operator because heaps of people <laughs> are going to die. That's first level thinking. Second yeah. level thinking is, well, actually, we're all going to be in lockdown. No one can attend a funeral and no one's going to be paying for it. A lot of people are going to die, potentially, uh, not as much as we feared at the early days, but uh, it actually turned out that COVID was horrible for the funeral operators. 
right? So, so go beyond the simplistic. And this is something I see again and again and again. Probably a good example at the moment, I think, is lithium. And so first level thinking is electric vehicles, uh, battery storage, et cetera, is going to mean that the world is going to demand a beep ton of, of lithium. And that's correct. Um, and then, But the first level thinking is, well, I'm going to buy lithium stock. A second order thinking in that area would probably say, well, that's true. But actually, although it's defined as one of these rare earths, it's actually very abundant in the earth's crust. And it will share, these companies will share all the characteristics with, with miners, which we know tend to be pretty ordinary, very capital intensive, a lack of pricing power, super thin margins. So there'll be a point where, and, and this you're seeing it right now, right? So, so a lot of people demanding lithium, price of lithium goes up. Those existing miners who are doing it are making bank. Well done to you. Um, capitalism and the system that we live in will go, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should start mining lithium too, uh, because I'm making awesome margins here. So more and more and more supply comes onto the market. But like with coal or iron ore or or any of these things, lithium, it's, a, it's an atomic element. Lithium is lithium is lithium. Um, I know some geologists will say, well, no, it comes in different grades, but bear, bear with me here. So, so what I would imagine is a very, very, very likely outcome is that absolutely the world will demand more lithium, but that demand will invoke a very, very strong supply side response. So people who are getting into it now, particularly some of these exploration companies, they'll get into it. By the time they, let's assume they even find something, by the time they find it and they spend five years and a gazillion dollars in actually developing it, the price is very likely to have come down a lot. Not because we're using less and less of it, but because there's just a huge amount of supply. And you see this in all kinds of uh, all kinds of areas, but anything that's that you could define as a commodity, pretty much sells at a marginal, uh, at a price that's marginally above the cost of production, uh, because the the forces of capitalism will, will always drive it that way. Because as soon mm. as someone starts losing money on that proposition, mines shut down, supply falls, price goes up. Price goes up stimulates a demand, a supply side response, more people come in and you've always got that equilibrium. You name the commodity. So there's a lot of thinking, there's there's a lot. I, I'll summarize just this first point by saying, go beyond the first level. You know, we saw one other example with COVID was, um, oh, masks and hand sanitizer. Do you remember how hard it was to get your hands on these things? Mm. And then people were buying any stock that was related to this because people go, oh, the world's going to need a lot of this stuff. Yes, they are. Turns out making a mask or hand sanitizer is super cheap, super easy. Anyone can do it. Breweries, gin distilleries were switching and pivoting in, into that kind of spot. So what happened? Massive supply side response. And any of those companies, although they might have made some abnormal profits for a short period while the rest of the, the, the uh, market caught up, that just went away. It went away. Yeah, the, there was one company that went from what, like 10 cents to $3 and now it's like 30 cents. It, it was, was like hand sanitizer. Stupid, or right? And so what you need, in, it's different if someone can say, I can sustain this competitive edge. I can sustain my pricing power. You guys uh, might come up with the world's best smartphone, but it's going to be really hard to disrupt Apple. Only Apple makes the iPhone, right? Like it's it's you 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 have to think it through because if some someone is out there making incredible margins, all that does is flash a 
big light to everyone else, every entrepreneur on the planet to, hey, come and join the party. And the very act of joining the party yeah. will have very big dynamics. Um, so, so it's just, especially why, like, for example, you, even just thinking through this second order effect can help you um, understand the quality of like a business, right? It's like, how easy is it for new, new competition to just emerge? How quickly can they have a product competing? Is this another, another part of it? I'll give you another mm. example, war in Ukraine, another really dark, horrible sort of subject here. And so, so people are sort of seeing what's happening with gas prices and wheat prices and prices for associated securities are going up. And they should because there's less supply out there. It makes perfect sense. But you've got to come back to the basics here. The price of an asset, the price of a security is defined really as all of the future cash flows that it, it will ever make. And so if you have a even a multi-year period of super normal profits, when you add up all of the cash flows uh, through now to end of eternity, it actually doesn't bump the intrinsic value up. So in these, in these scenarios, should the prices of associated securities rise? Yes, they should, because the future cash flows that we were all expecting turn out to be a little bit better. They're not going to turn out to be 400% better. When, when looked at over the fullness of time. So, so what you, you're seeing, I'm seeing a lot of it now, people just going and buying anything that's got exposure to wheat as if, as if these prices will last forever. Now, I can't predict how it's going to go, but yeah. you know, I, I, don't, I don't think the price of wheat is going to stay where, it, like in 10 years' time, five years' time, three years' time probably, maybe less, it'll probably normalise. Again, back, back to a marginal a, a yeah, rate I think marginally above the cost of production. From, from what I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, but from what I know of, I guess, reading some of Howard Marx's um, letters, as the, which you mentioned before, is he's a more sort of conservative, long-term focus, like second-order thinking style investor. Like, And um, I understand that, and that's what I try to do with most of my portfolio. But I think one of the most frustrating things for just your everyday investor, or at least just talking about myself, is that so often for reasonably long periods of time, the first order thinking thing just like works. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's a bit, it's a bit of a game of chicken though. So it's it like is, if you're, it's, if it's you're early you're, enough on that trend and you get out early enough. It's the enough. pile of sand again, right? Yeah. Like it's like yeah. if you're, mm. if, if you're like the last sand to, to go on before it collapses, like you can end up at the bottom of the pile from that. hundred percent. Um, Hundred yeah. percent. Andrew, because I haven't read this book, where would this sit in terms of if would you have read other books before you read this one, or is this like a you know two um, to three year into your journey? Like, how do you how would you think about this? I didn't really have a logical approach to this. I kind I I kind of just sort of read books as they were sort of recommended or they came onto the radar. I did end up reading it relatively early, but it's one of the. I think the sign of a good book is that you can read it years later and get something else entirely out of it. Mm, so I think agreed. if you're brand new to investing and you read it, you'll definitely get a bunch of great thoughts and mental models out of it. If you're someone who's been investing professionally for 20 years and you know everything, I think you can read it and still find some really good value in it. Even yep. if it's even if it's just reiterating some core concepts that you, you know you need to it's 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 some like people say it's like you know there's nothing new in the Bible, but people, you know, a lot of people rock up to church each Sunday. They're not learning anything <laughs> new. They're just they're just getting these same messages repeated. I don't mm. mean to take it in a religious direction. I'm not a religious person, but it's it's a good it's a, it's a good example of that kind of stuff. No matter how well you shave, you've got to shave the next day, kind of thing. And so I think I think no matter where you are, it, it's it's well worth a read. And if you're a bit tight, like I am, just go to the website. And these this is all put together from from uh, all these memos, which, which are entirely free. Although, let me just say this though: I'm amazed at how tight people are when it comes to books. Like you, you know, you you could spend you could spend like 
I don't know what fifty grand on a degree, or God knows what it is. Or I could probably, I could probably take a one thousand dollar budget, buy a huge amount of books, and probably give me a far, far, far better education. It, it, you know, if you're spending thirty dollars on a on a good quality book, the return. Speaking of return on invested capital, mm-hmm. the return on invested capital is insane. So yeah, these these are these are well worth uh, the time. Well, the there will be a heap of books in the in the show notes for this, so people will be able to um, start on that journey. Yeah, um, Tre- Trevor, I bring up again. Trevor is one of those ones that uh, went on this intense journey of reading and listening to as much as he could, and it's it's great. Canadian Aussie, um, oh, check him a, out. He's legend. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. really. Yeah, he's, he's on straw man, and, and he's known on he's the, the top ranks members actually on straw man. So he's he's sort <laughs> of go. like it works. He's a great stuff thinker, works. but but it, but you know, the way that we sort of rank people is in very large part through their performance and he's just crushing it. And is, is that surprising? Not really. When someone puts that much effort into self-improvement, it's kind of inevitable. So. Yeah, true. It is. Um, and I think this, this, so I'll just switch over to some um, contributions from Twitter now. Um, this is one that relates to both of the points that you guys were saying, which is from outside capital. They said their favorite book is capital returns by marathon asset management, because it explains the, their thinking and actions throughout the investment cycle and supply demand dynamics. The key point being that if you focus on supply and how easy slash difficult it is to meet the demand, supply constraints, more important than demand increases for profit. So basically this, this is something that I think we've spoken about before, but basically how is it easy is it to meet that demand with new supply? Um, and that's basically, that. yeah, your competitive edge there. Um, there's too many for me to call out, but maybe I'll, I'll bring up a couple of them. A few people said for new investors, um, Regan was one of these, said um, Robert Kiyosaki's rich dad, poor dad, because of the, the shift um, of the cash flow quadrant using uh, cash to identify assets and, and focus on those. Um, the Art of War um, helps with the psychology. Too. Yep, yep. That's from Doctor of Spin on Twitter. Uh, Dean Morrell, who's... Um, a very, very successful investor in his own right says one up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch because it sowed the seed of self-belief and provided an initial framework for investing. I think if you're in, Agreed. if you're trying to convince someone to get into investing, I feel like one up on Wall Street's got to be in the top yeah. three to give to someone. Super easy to read. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, again, from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Kate says um, Millennial Money by Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Um, I don't know if you, have you guys read Psychology of Money. Uh, Lockie's put it on Twitter. I, here's the funny thing: I've recommended it to people without reading it, and <laughs> and and then it's because I've followed Morgan for so long and I've read all his posts and stuff. I really should get around to it, but he he's he's another one of these people. There's no original ideas in his book. That sounds really critical. I don't mean it to be, but his his art is is in just wonderfully effective communication and breaking down complex ideas in very. Um, uh, uh, easy to, to to grasp terms. So I haven't read it, but I recommend you read it. <laughs> I, I will read it at some point. Yeah. yeah, I can I can vouch for it. It's brilliant. Um, Andrew Ray says the art of execution by Lee Freeman Shaw. It's less about being right or wrong, and more about what you do when you're right and what you ah, do when you're wrong. Idea. Love yeah. that. Can I, can I just expand, maybe riff on that a little bit? I yeah. think one of the biggest mistakes in new investors make is they they've they inevitably come across, they end up making a mistake. They go, oh, it's too hard. I don't know what I'm doing. And they give up. Forgetting that the world's greatest investors make mistakes 
all the time. Mm. Um, so, so one, this is a game of probability. So I don't care who you are, you Warren Buffett or Peter Lynn, you're going to make a bunch of mistakes. And Buffett Brothers is very open each year in his annual letters talking about his mistakes. So one, expect it, right? Two, it's not so much that you made a mistake. It's, it's the magnitude of the loss when you do make a mistake versus the magnitude of the gain when you get it right. Yeah. So I would even say I would be, this is not exactly my approach, but I would be happy if I had a strike rate of 40%. So that is, you know, four out of 10 investments I make work out and the others don't. But if the ones that don't work out mean that I cop a 30% loss and the ones that work out means I make a 10X return, I mean, do the expected value calculation on that. You know, the, speaking of maths, um, yeah, it's insane. It's in, it's an insanely profitable formula. It, it's like flipping a loaded coin. I might have an eighty percent chance on this coin of flipping heads, and I'm going to bet heads every time. What am I, an idiot? Like, of course I'm going to do that. But that doesn't mean I just can't flip ten tails in a row. But but a lot of people will do that and they go, oh, actually, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip to, to tails. Let, let me tell you about a fascinating psychology experiment. They actually gave a bunch of mathematics probability students a, 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 a hypothetical. They said you've got to uh, actually they, they gave them actual loaded coins and said it's more likely to come up heads. Um, you get a hundred, you get a hundred flips, and how are you gonna go? The number of people that started making bets on the tail. Was was like forty percent in the end, because they go, oh, it's come up, it's come up this like heads four times in a row. How long can that? As if the coin has memory or something. And these are <laughs> these are people who have studied this, you know. So it's kind of, I, yeah. I think, a probabilistic thinking and 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 understanding that that loss is part of the game is super important. And one more quick thing I'll expand on that is is that even when you're Right. Eventually, you'll probably have, suffer through a, a long period of looking wrong. So yeah. I can I can say that some of my best investments I bought, I like the business. I guarantee you, anything I touch within two weeks is down thirty percent. I've just I've got the magic touch, guys. And so is it. But they but it, it, eventually that will come good. So it, it's even when you're you're going to be wrong a lot of the time, wrong wrong. But even when you're right, you're going to look wrong for a long time. As well, that doesn't. That's not an argument just to hold, no matter what. You know, you got to you've got to make sure that the thesis is still intact. But this this hubris of expecting that the second that I buy something is the moment that the rest of the market cottons on and thinks I'm right and starts buying. It just doesn't happen. Mm. So yeah, just just a few extra thoughts on what you said there because it's I think it's super important. Totally. Um, Sam said the uh, the built to last book by Jim Collins said it narrowed my focus when it comes to assessing businesses, their cash flows, and their ability to earn using their core competency. Um, there are so many good uh, examples of books like here it. in this Twitter thread, so I'll I'll chuck it out in the show notes for anyone that that wants to see see some more recommendations uh, from the community around us. And Peter Thornhill's book, Motivated Money, uh, says ex-Jordanary um, chef, raises a good argument for why you should invest in shares over property, albeit he is investing in licks and more income. It's an easy page turner and a local homegrown I've got, hero. I've got that book. Uh, I thought of, yes, here it is. Here it is in arm's reach. This is, this is a pamphlet, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tiny. Um, and it's, I think it's one of the most underrated books for investors. The reason I, I recommend it for brand new people is not that it's going to teach you much about the mechanics and the, and the practicality of investing, but it makes the argument 
for investing in the share market. Now, I think anyone who's listening to this podcast, we're probably preaching to the converted, but usually, and I think everyone will be familiar with this. If you're ever at a barbecue here in Australia, <laughs> people will be talking about property. And if you sort of say, well, shares are a good investment, it's just, it's looked at like a casino. It, it's looked at like this really hyper speculative, crazy Wolf of Wall Street kind of thing. And, and Peter just gives you this really sensible case of actually, this is this is the really smart, in fact, quite low risk thing thing to do. So I, I double down on that recommendation. I, I think it's it's the kind of book you want to give to someone who is not investing in the market and needs to see the rationale for doing that. Yep. Cool. Two more. We've got um, Your First Million, Making It in Stocks. That's by RW. And Moatless, who's a good follow on, on Twitter, says The Warren Buffett Way by Hagstrom. Oh, yeah. The notion that becoming super wealthy need not be inconsistent with being a decent human being was a light bulb moment. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Some we can all appreciate. So there's some great wrecks there. Um, guys, it's, um, it's so awesome that you, you come on the show. I know you're, you're both busy. Um, and importantly, I know both of you have, you know, your services to run. I know Claude, you're keeping supporters happy at a rich life. Andrew, you've got all your premium members, the, the meetings that I'm constantly getting invited to uh, with CEOs and stock pitches and those types of things. It's, it's a lot on your plate. So I appreciate you coming along. I even appreciate, um, because I know you guys have got a wait list to get in as part of your services. And um, I, when I, when I put out the the email to you, I was like, we can give, we can give listeners a discount on your services. And you guys are like, yeah, yeah, but there's a wait list. So, and I'm like, come on. <laughs> um, so maybe Claude, I'll start with you. So, People can um, email you and yeah, to, 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 yeah, to, skip, to skip the wait list. So, uh, yeah, the secret hack is if you uh, would like to um, try out uh, becoming a supporter, which like means a subscription to uh, A Rich Life, you can just shoot me an email um, at claude at arichlife.com.au and, <laughs> you know, mention, mention this podcast or The Last Liberal Art and I you can just skip the wait list and, and try out the service. Um, there's a pro rata refund at any time for any reason. So, you know, there's no lock-in if you decide it's not for you. Cool. Yeah. I'll put all the, all of the info in the show notes once again. And um, just a re- reminder for anyone that's listening to this for the first time, as part of this investor bootcamp series, there's one big master Google document that I'm updating every week. So you can just go in and download that and then I'll have all the links to the guys stuff. Uh, Andrew, how about you? I know you just opened for straw man premium. Yeah, we, we only launched in August last year. Um, we filled our quota. We thought we could accommodate a few more in March, which we've done. So we are closed again. Um, but if you go, look, if you go to Strawman, you can create a free account. Um, it means that you can't see the things that our, our premium members are, are buying and selling, but you can see a lot of their content. It's just delayed by a month. And I think what's really cool mm-hmm. for people who are just getting started out is we've got, we've got a... Um, uh, play money portfolio. So you can, you have a hundred thousand dollars in play money, not real money. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you can trade the market. Um, I shouldn't say trade the market. You can invest through the market and, and it's a, it's a great way to get a little bit of experience, uh, as well. But yeah, if, if you're interested, um, there's a wait list on, you'll see on the site and that way when we do open, we'll, we'll let you know, but look, it's, it's a bit of a funny model. It's that we're not out there to sort of be as big and as profitable as we can. It's sort of like, we kind of want the people who want to be there and are prepared to contribute. So it's a, it's a, it's about 700 odd members. Um, but if you're the kind of person, it's really an investment club, get, let's get rid of all the spin. It's just an investment club. And if you, if you, the best way to get involved is to just start using it because it's it can be useful for anyone starting out just, you know, 
put a record of your decision, jot down why you think you did that. That can be a great, um, you know, way to improve as an investor and, and, and make better decisions in real time as well, because being able to describe something is, you know, step one, like describe why you're doing X is, Mm. um, very useful. And especially, you know, if you end up holding a stock two years later and you forgot why you actually bought it in the first place, could be a problem. <laughs> or, you know, it's like, because your mind can play tricks on you. You're like, oh, I bought it for these reasons, but yeah. that might not have been what you actually thought at the time. Not can, mm-hmm. will, will <laughs> yeah. happen. You know, we will do anything <laughs> to preserve our ego. If, so if you if you, if it went up, you're like, I bought it due to my genius. I, knew it was gonna like, I, I bought it that guy over there. It's, it's well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is great. So we're actually in one of the um, investor bootcamp episodes that are coming up. We actually run through the best platforms, newsletters, um, groups, and whatever. Uh, and Strawman is featured in that, and so is uh, a rich life in the newsletter section. So, um, so we'll be diving into that a bit more and, and explaining what people get from that. But um, guys, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Just quickly, one final question I neglected to ask before is. When you do read books or listen to podcasts or whatever, do you guys take notes? And if so, how do you take notes? I don't offer myself as a, something someone should copy in any way, but uh, as a, as I can witness from my uh, last liberal art book here is I apparently take notes by just dog-earing the pages um, yeah. and trying to make the corner of the dog-ear point to the bit in the page that I was trying to note. Um, so I think that's a very bad system that will ruin your books. And my dad would be, you know, aghast to, to hear this, not, not that he'll be listening. <laughs> no, but I do the same thing and I do a bigger dog ear for a more important point. Um, uh, nice <laughs> and then, yeah, I did. Obviously I have like a, 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 like a journal, like a Google doc to record things. How about you, Andrew? Anything that you do? I kind of confess, I don't. I don't do that. I should. Um, I'm a very slow reader. Uh, well, I think when look, if you're reading fiction or something, I'll just I'll churn through it really quick. But if it's reading some of these books, I like to take it really slow and let the message sink in. Reread yeah. sections and and that kind of stuff. So it's not about just scanning over the words. I I really try to internalize as I read, and and if I have to read a paragraph a few times before the, you know, I, I, so I, I sort of just, I go through it as, as slow as I can. I should make notes. I should be more like Trevor because I think that's just, we know that that aids in retention and memory and, and the rest of it, but uh, use your own words. I think you yeah, know, just, just, just really copying important. it out is going to do it. It's, it's, it's more about you being able to reflect back the message in, in, in a way that's more meaningful to you is the way to do it. Yeah, for sure. And um, we'll put in the links to to uh, Trevor's Twitter and to that article that he wrote for you, Claude, and also the straw man profile, because he might also be able to help um, newer people who are looking to go on a similar journey with learning and accumulating information as quickly as possible. Just on that very quickly, Owen, I, I would sort of say that journey, we're sort of talking of pitching it sort of this idea of people sort of on starting out on this journey, um, not to discourage anyone, but that journey never ends. Uh, no. And the moment it does is the moment that's probably that pride before fall moment. So I don't care if you've been investing for 50 years, there's always stuff to learn and it's an ongoing evolution. So yeah. And, yep. and, and it's an enjoyable one too. So yeah, get started if you haven't. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've met so many good people through a passion for investing. It's, it's like obviously a mixed bad as with anything you do, but um, it's great because successful investors know that, collaboration and sharing ideas and helping each other improve is valuable. And so it can be Mm. at its best. It encourages people to cooperate, which is nice to see. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Gents, 
thanks for taking the time to join me today. Loved it. Thanks Alan. for having Always, me. always appreciate it. Thank you. Good to see you both.